Hey everyone, Alex Chong here, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Beyond the Books. Before we get to today's interview with Aaron Bamman, just a reminder that if you want to see the video interview, including the pictures used during the podcast, uh, go to the YouTube version of this podcast. Go to youtube.com, search Beyond the Books Men, and you should be able to find all the episodes there. All right, with that being said, uh, here's today's episode with Aaron Bamman, originally recorded on January 24th, 2021. And now here's this episode of Beyond the Books with your host, Alex Chong. Today's forecast, 31 degrees and foggy conditions. Even though it sounds horrible, these are perfect conditions to record a podcast. Welcome to today's episode of Beyond the Books. My name is Alex Chong. Today's date is January 24th, 2021. And here on Beyond the Books, we are here to dive deep into the backgrounds and stories of our future healthcare heroes. And everyone, I am very excited for our second guest today. Uh, she was born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, and has done some incredible things. So I'm very, very excited to meet her. Everyone, please give a round of sound for our guest, Aaron Bamman. Aaron, how are you? Thanks, Chong. I'm doing really well today. I uh, just got back from volunteering, so kind of smell like a kitchen, but that's okay. That's all right, because you were um, volunteering in a homeless shelter in Bloomington, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's known as Shalom. Um, recently, they, they changed their organization to Beacon, um, but yeah, it's been around the community for a while, and they serve pretty much anyone experiencing homelessness around here. So they're a pretty wonderful group. Awesome. So Aaron, we have one mission to get done today on this podcast. Would you like to hear what it is? I would love to hear it. All right. Today, we're going to prove that you, Aaron Bamman, are more than just a medical student. How does that sound? I. It sounds daunting. I don't know. It could be <laughs> difficult, but hopefully we can make it happen. Yes. I think working together makes the team better. So I think we were yeah. able to get through this. Um, are, you ready? are you ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So as I said, you were born in Indianapolis, Indiana, but you didn't attend a typical high school, shall we say. You attended a high school called International High School, um, and you participated in something called the Middle Years Program, which I'm going to interpret as like late middle school, early high school, and the International Black baccalaureate program, which I'm kind of interpreting as like, okay, like second half of high school, more or less. Um, so I want to know more about that, but I first got to ask you, what the heck is a Gryphon? <laughs> a classic question. Um, I played basketball and volleyball and we got that all the time. Um, so a Griffin. Oh, it's a Griffin. Uh, okay, which, my bad. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a unique spelling. So there are multiple spellings to the word Griffin, which, you know, I didn't really know, but it was my mascot. So I learned throughout the years. Um, it is a mythological creature <laughs> and it is half lion and half eagle, I think is the other component, which okay. is why it has wings there, as you can see. Kind of looks like there's a little bit of dragon. Maybe I'm missing a dragon piece, but I think it's lion and, and eagle. Maybe a dragon. There's like a bull's tail. I see like <laughs> wings. I see like, it's like if you combine every um, decently threatening animal into one creature. To me, that's what a griffin looks like. I don't know. I think that's what they were going for. They were like, how do we make the most intimidating creature so that our tiny school seems potentially a little bit scary in sports? <laughs> so yeah, tell me more about international high school. Like, how did you get involved into it and what makes it stand out compared to other high schools? Yeah, so um, it's the International School of Indiana is a, a school that has all the way from pre-K up through 12th grade. So. They have a high school, but they also have everything leading up to that. Um, and it only started, it only came into existence in India in 1994, I think. So it's, it's a pretty new school um, and it's a private school. So not surprisingly with those two features, it's really small. <laughs> um, and the way that I ended up there is my parents enrolled me in kindergarten. Um, I think my parents liked the idea as far as I understand from what they've told me of just having a strong language program. They realized like how beneficial it was to know multiple languages because they themselves didn't. Uh, and they thought, wow, if we could get her started young, she'll pick up on it really easily. 
So um, I think that was really the thought process. They just liked the program. They liked that philosophy. And um, the international school has language immersion programs. So when you start as a little kid, your parents, if you're really young or you, if you're older, choose a language track. And right now they have Spanish, French, or Mandarin. And uh, Mandarin was a more recent addition. When I was there, it was just French and Spanish. Um, and so my parents chose Spanish and uh, like half of your day ends up being in Spanish. So you're kind of learning English and that language side by side. And then as you get older, if you stay with the program within the school, um, it's kind of like a phasing out language immersion. So you'll have, you'll start off learning like your sciences and math and other and history even in that language. So for me, that was Spanish. So you're, you're forced to practice it basically, which is kind of great. It sounds scary, but it's not if you get to start really when you're really little. Um, and then as you get further along in middle school, you, it gets to the point where you essentially only have history class in that language and then everything else is in English. So they kind of like ease you out of it. And then by high school, you just have the language class um, of like, it, for me, it was Spanish. So I had my Spanish class, which looked very similar to most people's English classes, right? Like mostly literature kind of thing. And then everything else is in English. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of their, their philosophy. They, uh, and then the MYP program is just like the preceding program for the international baccalaureate. Um, and the IB, like you said, it's the last two years of high school. It's 11th and 12th grade. That's a program that exists at schools in the US, but it also given the name, it exists in different schools throughout the world. Um, so they take, uh, I think what we were always told at least and what I think was true in my education is they really focus on like critical thinking. So a good way, I, a good example I think of that was I did art in my uh, junior and senior year. And basically, I mean, they, they valued it if you could like have good skills or come up with something that's aesthetically nice. But basically, if you could critically like reason that it was interesting or making a statement <laughs> or, or back it up with some kind of analysis, that was really what they were looking for. And, and they kind of promoted that. Whereas from what I've heard and or what I was told, um, AP programs, uh, for example, like AP art in high school is more focused on like developing your skills, developing like the actual techniques. So they have their different strengths. Um, but I think that is kind of a good example of like the philosophy behind the IB program, I guess. Gotcha. And is it true yeah. you got to go on some pretty cool trips too? Because I think, I don't know how much I to dig up, but I did find they went to Peru in 2009, I think. Uh, I so did. can you tell me like, what was it like going to Peru, especially at such a young age as well? Yeah. So just for a little bit of um, background, as far as like the school and traveling goes, they have um, a few options where you can do like a travel abroad, like week long trip, week or 10 day trip. Um, and that occurs in sixth grade, which I didn't go on. That was, that would have it's like based on your language track. And for me, that would have been to Mexico. And my brother got really homesick when he went. So my parents, when my turn came around, he's older than me. They were like, you're too young, you're not gonna go. So um, so I didn't go in sixth grade. And then in eighth grade, you get to, you have another chance. And we went to Barcelona. Um, and this trip actually, so to Peru was, I think it would have been in eighth or ninth grade for me. Um, but I actually came into the opportunity to go through one of my best friends, Claudia, her mom, who is an allergist, she's a physician out in California now, but I, I met them at my school, so they used to live in Indy. Um, she ran a trip to Peru, and she still does it every year, where she partners with a couple nonprofits there, and she brings a group of volunteers to help set up um, at a couple clinics and just provide volunteer help where it's needed um and obviously being like a eighth or ninth grader my main skill set was literally just english and spanish so that was pretty much what i was doing in in the volunteering aspect um i helped gather some donations beforehand um like they always ask for a lot of hygiene products stuffed animals for some of the smaller communities that they go to um for the kids and then um they asked for medical donations but i wasn't really part of that and then when i was there we would spend like most of the day um, just in the clinic. It was called the Policlinico Belen. And they take different volunteers throughout the whole year. It's a really cool model, actually. 
Um, and so we were posted up there during the day and I just helped interpret basically for either um, sometimes physicians, but usually just the instructions for medications and the pharmacy. I was just making sure people understood what they were, how they were supposed to take something. And I was just reading it in English and writing it in Spanish and telling them in Spanish. Um, yeah, and it was, it was definitely a very um, eye-opening experience for me. I hadn't really been to any, any setting, like whether it's in my own country or another part of the world that had poor access to clean water, a lot of the typical issues that we associate with developing countries. Um, and so it was really eye-opening in that respect, I think, especially as like an eighth or ninth grader, um, realizing like, wow, we take, we take these things for granted for sure all the time at how easy and accessible it is. Um, and I think it kind of put into perspective uh, just being a little bit more grateful for everyday things and, um, and connecting with other people throughout the world, I think was a cool experience because I was able to speak Spanish. I didn't make any best friends in Peru, but I did get to talk to some of the patients and like hear their stories and, or the people in the clinic. So it was, it was really eye opening. It was, it was awesome in so many ways. And can I say striking some, you're kind of ahead of your time, striking some Instagram worthy poses as I see on this picture here. Yeah, I mean, what do you expect from an eighth or ninth grader who has access to social media and is going somewhere with her best friend on a trip? Naturally, we would see something that looked interesting or colorful or kind of like vintage, I don't know, just very lame things that an eighth grader would be like, this is cool, we should pose by it, so. So I would love your yeah. insight on this because, um, in America, right, like learning a second language, it's kind of sort of done. Uh, I mean, you, you may have some exposure in elementary, middle, high school, maybe. Um, I mean, some some districts probably don't learn a second language, either because of lack of resources or lack of interest or whatever. Um, obviously, by you're, you're immersed in another language um, at a pretty early age. Um, so I guess I just want your opinion. Besides, like, the knowledge of being able to speak a second language or like being pretty well versed in a second language. What do you, what else do you think is the benefit um, of learning a second language at a younger age? It's a good question. Um, I think for me, there were a couple benefits. Um, I think one is that it, kind of teaches you to think about things a little bit differently sometimes. For example, even when you're just translating a phrase, um, you might realize in another language, it, there's a different structure to it. And so it just kind of makes you think about like, why do we say the things the way we say them when other people say it differently? So I think um, not that that's like a mind blowing thing or like a change in your worldview, but I think naturally you start to wonder why a little bit more with, within the context of your own language and like, why do we do the things we do? Because it's just a natural exposure to another language and other, and other cultures that come with that language. Um, and, and if you have different teachers, for example, we had teachers that spoke Spanish from different countries. Um, and I think that was, so it's not just like speaking the language, but that kind of provides you an avenue to also see like, oh, what is, what does someone from Venezuela speak like versus someone from Spain and what kind of things happen in their culture? And, oh, okay, people who speak Spanish have can be very different and have their very unique cultures. Um, so kind of like broadens your perspective, I think a little bit of, of just understanding what that language is and like other cultures and kind of, at least for me, I feel like it instilled a little bit of curiosity. Like you wanna learn more because it seems cool and new. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I think not only is that there are different things out there, but that the different things are like, okay, like they, you don't have to be scared just because they're different. I think that's a great point, um, yeah. especially at a young age. It's like, okay, like maybe they do things in a certain way or like the word structure is different or culture might be different, but that's okay. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So when you're not too busy, um, learning our language or jet setting the world. You're actually an athlete as well. I think you did both volleyball and basketball in, um, in uh, at least the high school portion of it. But um, you're actually interviewed. I saw this article in um, USA Today. And to me, this is very interesting because um, 
it's not a great memory, um, but um, it seems like you were interviewed. Um, why didn't you just tell me? Maybe you can tell the story better than I can. Like, what, what's the story behind that there? Honestly, I remember this like only a little bit because I don't know if my memory was just like, well, that sucked and just like blocked it out or, <laughs> or if it was just like not that interesting to me at the time. But, um, and the only reason I even know the article exists at this point is because pre-med school, I like Googled myself to see what was out there in the world <laughs> and, and came across it that way, which is hilarious. But right. So I guess the story is that a team from Bloomington or something I don't know yeah. if Bloomington was the victim or Bloomington was like the person piling it on, but they lost by like 80 or 90 points, like a, a huge margin. And um, for some reason, they interviewed you from a different game where I think your team lost by 41 points. Um, yeah. But what was kind of cool is that you had that one year, but then I don't know if it was the year after, it was your senior year. You actually had a really good, your team had a really good record at 16 and five. I mean, it was a really good turnaround. So um, I guess I just want to hear like, what was that journey like coming from kind of a deflating loss um, into just a big turnaround for both yourself and the team? Yeah, so um, just for context, uh, maybe some listeners went to tiny schools and can relate or they just went to schools where sports were not their strength. But um, my school was definitely uh, known for its academics and not for its sportsmen, like sports achievements, I guess I should say. And uh, so it was not uncommon for us to like, our, our teams would just change drastically year to year because you don't have that many kids to really pull from anyway. So if you have a couple people who are pretty good one year and then they graduate, your next year might be like, you might have nobody just because there are so few students to choose from. So yeah, even from middle school through the end of high school, sometimes we just got smashed. Like we just got just totally destroyed in some of our volleyball and basketball games. And then, but it was not, I don't know. I, I was like weirdly okay with it because it was, it became familiar. <laughs> and then, um, and then other times we did really well. And I think I was, I was lucky in that I had a, a pretty good group of um, girls that I was playing basketball with in my grade. So I think that speaks to the progression that you're talking about. We're like freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, like we weren't as good. And then, but because we got, we had two great coaches um, and because we were kind of a unit that got to go through all those years together. Um, there actually was some progress in that. And, and I will give the coaches credit too. I think they put a lot of effort into building the program. Um, they started doing a summer camp where people could come and do like a basketball camp for a little bit of training off season, which was a new concept for my school because we didn't do weight training or anything like that um, or really much off season stuff. So yeah, I, I guess what I would say about this is that um, it was interesting because to me, the like losing like that wasn't a big deal. And again, I think it comes from like just being in a, a school where sports mattered, like we cared about them, but it, it was kind of like a side project. And so, um, whereas I think I like, and I didn't grow up in a really sports intense like family. Um, so to me, I was like, well, yeah, we got creamed. Like, it sucks, but you learn and you move on or you realize like they were really good. We weren't that good and you just kind of move on. Um, but it was really exciting to make it to senior year. And like, like I said, just grow with that group of girls and like see the progress that we had made and um, kind of prove to ourselves more than to others, but also to others that we were capable of like being a little bit better, even if it wasn't the best, even if it wasn't like winning some championship it was still just like wow we had a solid record so um I think the losses teach you to kind of like I think those are actually like really important if you go through them as a middle schooler and high schooler because you learn how to take it and and not be angry about it or or if you are angry and sad you learn kind of and if you have good coaches and good support you kind of learn how to make the most of it or, or take lessons moving forward that you can learn from or um, things that you can improve upon. Maybe maybe it was like your dribbling was really rough and they had seals every play. So you know what you need to work on moving forward. Um, so yeah, I think, I think those losses were really humbling and, and actually helped 
I felt like they helped me grow a lot um, into just being kind of a better sport, like to, and, and to not necessarily um, expecting so much of myself all the time, or rather being okay with, with disappointment when it does happen or being okay with failure when it does happen and realizing you can, you can move on from that or you can take something and learn from it. And that's, that's okay too. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's the biggest thing as like a middle schooler or high school is that, okay, the world's not going to end because some, because he had a bad night or something like that. And yeah. it's going to have, I mean, letdowns are going to happen, but it's okay. Um, you, and the most important thing is where you kind of go from there. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that night you may not be thinking that because it's obviously yes. disappointing. <laughs> but, For sure. <laughs> um, I'm sure like now or probably even before, like you kind of realize, okay, like, yeah, that kind of sucked, but I felt like I learned a lot from that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and like you said, it's definitely not immediate. It's not like you walk out of the game with your head super high, like <laughs> this was such a positive this experience. Yeah. <laughs> no, like you're, you're walking out of there probably like drying your tears, but yeah. But moving forward, you kind of learn what you can pull from it. So you can like find some of the positives. And like you said, it's not like this traumatic or like huge experience that defines you or defines your future. Um, it's just something that you can use to maybe restructure something moving forward Absolutely. Or, or something like that. Absolutely. All right, Aaron, ready to get out of high school? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you went to Indiana University Bloomington, um, and you did quite a few cool stuff there. But I think one of the biggest passions, not related to medicine, that you had not only in college but probably before college as well, and you kind of alluded to earlier, was your passion for art. So I kind of want to talk about that for a second. So. I guess the first question, just to keep it open-ended, like what got you so much into art as a, as a young kid and kept it up during um, college and everything? Yeah, um, I'm not really sure how I first got into it. You know, I think I, I always had um, an interest in like something that looked cool or looked interesting or fun. And um, I always enjoyed the process of making something. Um, so whether that was like, a fun paper mache project in elementary school or or making a poster um, in, in like middle school or high school. I always really loved that kind of creative process behind, you know, kind of designing it. And so I knew that that was something that I had interest in, but didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. Um, in high school, doing art, um, part of my motivation was that I knew I would enjoy it. I knew it would be fun. Um, and in the IB program, you have groups of different classes and um, in some of them, you have to choose between di like different disciplines. So art fell into what they called group six and you had to basically choose for the program, whether you were gonna do one of the arts, which was like visual art, music or um, theater, um, your B language, which for me was French or like chemistry and physics. And I was like, what is this like category? It made no sense to me whatsoever. Um, but my rationale at the time was, well, I really like making things and I think art would be fun. And then uh, obviously thinking kind of ahead towards like getting into college, I was like, I know I'm gonna do well enough in it that it'll look good on like my GPA. And so I, that was also like a classic high school benefit of it. Um, so that's kind of how I, I guess I started getting into it just vaguely. Um, and then I had Mrs. Tiefel was my art teacher in, uh, in the IB program and she was awesome. She was super supportive of all of her students and um, really encouraged us to kind of like push the boundaries with our projects and like she made it easy to just dive into it. So I think I really fell in love with that process of creating things more and then also had the chance to kind of experiment with like different styles of painting, making a collage, you know, different techniques that I'd never really messed around with before. So um, that was what motivated me to keep art around in, in college is I think just my experience in, in her class. I had such a, a fun time and I learned a lot. So, uh, and then in college, I, I started off wondering like, well, I really like science, but I also really like art. Where do I wanna go with these things? Um, and kind of like was jumping around, trying out a bunch of different classes among my general education credits and whatnot. 
Uh, and then I just realized like, wow, if I have to rely on art for money, I'm not gonna enjoy it. <laughs> and <laughs> I also <laughs> realized I didn't have that like underlying passion that drives a lot of artists where, you know, maybe they're really inspired by a, a specific like motif, like birds or uh, something around them, um, or they have some kind of underlying narrative of, of like why they do what they do and why it matters and why it's so important to them. And I just didn't have that. Like, I really just liked making things. And I just kind of, like I said, like that, that whole process and, and just the design aspect, I just thought it was fun. And I was like, I don't think that's enough for me to like make that a career. <laughs> Fair enough, so I, I kind of walked away from it. And then from this picture you're seeing, um, yeah, my brother's, uh, my now my sister-in-law, but his girlfriend at the time, Abby, she was the manager at Wine and Canvas in town. And we were just like talking at dinner one night and she was like, man, we really need new artists. You know, we're like, you know, phasing out some people, we're looking for new ones. And my brother somewhat jokingly is like, Aaron, you do art, right? And I was like, um, <laughs> sort of, I, I've done some art before, yes, but I've never taught people how to do it. And I don't have a ton of experience with acrylic paint. Um, and yeah so Abby was like well you should at least stop by we'll do a, a test class which is what you're seeing here where she had me paint um one of the paintings that they had and and basically walk her and another employee through how I would teach it mm -hmm. um so kind of like simulating a class as as a as a trial to see if I would be good enough essentially or if it would work out and it, it went really well and she was like I think you'll be great and so I started being an art teacher at that point on the weekends. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, he even did like couples painting and all and taught little kids and both adults, preschool yeah. stuff. So do you want to play a game, Aaron? Because I have an oh, interesting gosh. game to play with you. Oh actually. my gosh. So, yeah, okay, we can do it. I'm awesome. So yeah, let's do it. In this painting here with the lighthouse, like it's more, I only know art of two ways. It's either like realist, like literal, like you paint what is there, like it makes sense. Like this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And then there's more like abstract where like you kind of have to stare, maybe turn your head a bit, maybe look at it upside down and maybe you get some <laughs> sort of interest out of it. Yeah. And that's the part of art that I do not understand. So <laughs> we're going to play a game. I dug up some of your past paintings from like your Instagram feed or your Facebook feed or whatever. Oh boy. I dug up three of them. And I okay. think the game is like, okay, I'm just going to put it up on the screen and I just want you to help me out. Like, help me get something out because I'm just I'm like staring at it. it's like oh I'm not sure like what the message is here so how does that sound uh apologies in advance if any <laughs> of it is just absolute trash but let's let's do it let's do no, it they're, they're all pretty but like that's all I get it's like oh it's, it's pretty yeah <laughs> that might be as sophisticated as my responses but we'll see <laughs> all right so let's pull up the first picture here so I just see swirls. They're all just kind of going in a circular pattern. I'm getting a little bit dizzy. Yeah. What, 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 what's going on here? <laughs> so this was actually, um, I, I was doing another painting. Like this wasn't the painting itself. Um, and I used like an old uh, like cottage cheese lid or something like that, or like a yogurt lid as my palette. So where I had put all the paint down and was like taking it from. And at the end of the painting, I, I was like, oh, we have some like nice colors on here. And I, I, I don't even know why I did it, but I was just like, I'm gonna smear them around in a circle and see what happens. And that's literally what I did. <laughs> and so this is on the lid of like whatever piece of plastic I was using. And I, I thought it looked so cool because it reminded me of a geode or like of, of kind of the rings that you see in trees as they grow like oh, over time. Oh, yeah. Um, so it reminded me a lot of that. And, and I, I just, and I liked the color combination, like how they combine in some places in really like unique ways to make these cool shades of purple or um, like weird oranges. I just liked the color kind of progression. So that was what motivated me to post it. This definitely wasn't like a painting, like I said, that I sold or was making for a specific project. It was just a, basically a moment after a project where I was like, I made this thing that I think looks really neat and I'm going to share it with the world. <laughs> and like, what's the trick of like combining colors like this? Because if I try to combine colors, it'll all be like a disgusting gray mess. Yeah, so, like, yeah. How, no. what's, Which like, you can kind of see it does it at the end. Just, <laughs> you're not alone. <laughs> so like, what's the thought process of like picking the right color combos to make it 
pretty and not turn like dark gray or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, there's a lot of ways to kind of go about that actually, um, depending on what your goal is, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing that is kind of a standard thing in, in painting and arts uh, is that complementary colors. So if you look at a color wheel, anything that's across from another color. So the complement of orange is blue, yellow is purple, red is green. Um, if you if you have complementary colors, when you combine them, they will make brown <laughs> or they will make kind of like a blackish muddy color. It is inevitable. <laughs> it will happen every yeah. time. And so, so if you're working with complementary colors, it's just something you have to be mindful. Like if you're going to overlap them, you either need to do it very minimally so it doesn't combine a lot or Maybe if you're like blending it, you could use like white and transition like your, your orange into like a light orange into kind of some white and then into some blue. So you basically like cheat it and you're actually creating a layer in between, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense actually. Um, so it's, it's about learning how to like avoid those, the combinations that you don't want to have basically. Um, and then I will say overworking is, is a big issue. So this, like I said, I literally just like, I had like maybe a paper towel and I just spun it across the, the plastic and this happened. I didn't move it around multiple times. I wasn't like working it a bunch. Uh, it was like one fell swoop and it was just like, this is neat. Um, and a lot of times if you continue to work on something regardless of the colors that you're using, if you just can't stop yourself, <laughs> then then it will end up like a lot muddier than you hope. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I just can't, I can't stop. It's like, hey, let's just, Let's throw in another color here, because like, why not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like panic mode strikes, and then you're like, just keep adding, just keep adding. Yeah. All right, let's look at the second piece here. Let me pull it up super quick. So let's see. Share screen. So what I see from this is that, you know, there's a nice lady. She's making a pretty nice meal. Uh -huh. And then boom, a lightning bolt just struck her meal. Boom, it's electric. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's the literal point. But like, I don't know. Help me out here. What 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 what's behind what's the story behind this picture? Yeah, so this is actually um a little like recipe box that I have in my kitchen and I still have it. Um and I bought just like the plain wooden box, probably from Michaels or something. I don't know, some art store. Um and I just wanted to start keeping recipe cards, which like now I use Pinterest because I'm lazy and it's easier to save links than, than write things down on cards, but I still have it. Um, and, but yeah, I was cooking more and I wanted to start storing recipes. So I got the box and I was like, well, okay, what do I want to put on here? Um, and I basically Googled like a picture. I'm not very good at drawing from memory. So if I want to draw like a scene where someone's cooking or something like that. I, I need something to prompt me, um, like whether I'm copying it exactly or it's just kind of serving as like uh, inspiration, I guess. Um, anyway, so I was like, okay, I feel like someone should be cooking. That makes sense. And so I looked up a picture and I don't know if it was like a, a real life one or a cartoon, honestly, I don't remember for this one, but that's where like the person comes in. And then I, I just Googled like random, kitchen items that I could think of. I was like, eggs, cup, whisk. And so I just started adding cooking things on the table. And then honestly, the background, I think I just did it random. I think I just started like filling it in with a color, zero motivation on like why pink. I just started doing that. And then also the blue and white, like, I think it was just, I was like, oh, the blue will look nice with the pink. Um, and then Originally, I wanted to paint the whole thing, but I, I kind of reached this point where it was like half painted, half drawn. And I liked that it felt like you have this scene of a person cooking um, in this very like surreal background. Like you said, like lightning is striking the food or is, <laughs> is it spilling? Did it get like thrown out and now it's on the table and it's in the air? And what are these bubbles? Like, what are those coming yeah. from? Um, and so I kind of liked the, the idea uh, that like when you, sometimes when you're cooking or really when you're doing anything, you just find joy in, it's easy to feel like you're in your own world. Like you're, you're like kind of disconnected from reality and, and kind of that exact interpretation of like drawing something perfectly, for example. 
And so, yeah, I feel like it's really, for example, I get lost in cooking because I'll be making cookies and then it's been like two hours or something. I'm like, what has happened to my evening? Um, and I liked that. I liked kind of that theme that, that it brought to mind when I saw that, the combination of it being partially drawn and partially painted in this kind of like surreal background way. Um, so I just left it. I just left it there because I liked where it was at. Yeah, here's how bad my eyes are. I didn't even realize this was a box. I thought this was like a piece of paper. <laughs> it is really, at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, it's a really Oops. weird perspective. So, cause I'm just take, I'm like taking a picture from above but you can kind of see the side. But yeah, now it's crystal clear. Oh, duh, it's a box. <laughs> that's cool. So yeah, that's my, my little recipe box that still lives but doesn't get a whole lot of use these days cause Pinterest went out. <laughs> gotcha. All right, so we got one more photo here. This one's not, this one's pretty more straightforward, but honestly, I just love the picture because I think it's hilarious. Oh God. What do you remember a painting called the sexiest potato that ever lived? <laughs> oh my God. I, I might even have it somewhere tucked in my closet still. So oh, she's story? so beautiful. <laughs> what's oh, the story hello, of woman. this? <laughs> God, she's hot. Okay, so <laughs> um, my, my, one of my best friends, Claudia, she's actually the one whose mom runs the Peru trip. Mm -hmm. um, she, after she's lived in San Francisco for a really long time and uh, she's actually in residency right now in New York um, doing OBGYN, but cool. she came to visit me in Bloomington for a couple days, a few days or something. And it was while I was working at Wine and Canvas um, and she had never done that. And I was like, we should go to a class because my the bosses there were very, very nice and let us you know, come and do a class and bring a friend um anytime we wanted as long as you're not taking advantage of it really and so so I, I was like okay let's do it so her and I went together and we were painting the scene it was like a classic whining canvas like sunset over the water and I think whatever the the animal in the middle was was maybe like a dolphin Okay. Or like something, something that would be more normal than a potato. I'm but, interested to see where this is going, but yes, <laughs> I'm interested. And I don't, I don't remember if it was her idea or my idea, but we call each other like taters and potatoes all the time. I for absolutely no reason because it's we're in the end. That's fine. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so one of us is just like we're gonna draw a potato. And so we start like painting a potato and then we got into it and we added the sour cream, the <laughs> onion flares, the cheese. And and so became the sexiest potato that ever lived. It's a pretty hot potato. I'm gonna say. I mean, look at her lipstick and those eyelashes. <laughs> she is just, she's working it out there in the deep blue sea all, all by her lonesome. So yeah, that's, that's how that painting came to be. Don't worry, it did not, see any anything besides that class and then my closet probably for <laughs> the rest of its life gotcha all right Aaron as like someone who's been a part of the art world and it's like maybe understands the nuances a little better than the average person would so I guess my question is like as the years gone by things are becoming more and more digital for example like 3d printing is really taking off yeah and I guess some could say that like the classic like you know take a paintbrush, take some paint and like make something pretty with it. I guess there might be a worry that that art might be lost um, or might be not as appreciated. So I guess my question for you is um, what is like really valuable or why is it so important to remember to like still appreciate like the old fat, old fashioned, like, um, you know, like canvas and a brush and like paint and those kind of things. Yeah, I think I think the answer to that question is probably different for every person, at least to some extent. Um, everyone kind of finds their own value in art. That's sort of the beauty of it, right? Is whether it's digital or, or something that was handmade. Um, a lot of times, like you know, like the the box that I painted for my recipes. It's like I I saw this like oh you're lost in your own world of cooking, and I thought it was a fun idea. But like most people would look at it and be like, what happened here? Like so. <laughs> Part of the beauty of art is that you're, it's sort of this subjective experience of how you end up interpreting it. So I think everyone's um, sort of take on that question might be a little different, but mine, um, I think there are a couple things that come into play. Um, on just like a human level, I think people appreciate like physical items, right? Like we 
we live in this digital age and people have Kindles and you can read a lot of books online, for example. But I, I know a lot of people and I, I feel somewhat similarly, I'm not a huge reader, but I do feel like I read better and I kind of enjoy it more if it's like a physical book than staring at a screen. Um, and I know some people who are a lot more into reading and like, they just love the, like having the physical book or like the smell of the old books or maybe the aesthetic of having it um, in there, like on a, on a display, kind of like on a shelf or something in their house. Um, so I think, I think there's something to be said about like the physical object that can be really meaningful to people. It's either kind of like, because it, it because it's like a physical manifestation that it's theirs maybe, or it's passed down from generation to generation, um, or it just has a quality that feels somehow more authentic than something digital because it's it's you, it's tangible. It, like you can experience it in more ways than you can just looking at a screen. Um, like if you can pick it up, for example, mm -hmm. um, or change how it's displayed in your room or, or move it to different rooms, or I mean, it just depends on what it is, but I think, Something about that, like tangibility of it, um, makes it, I don't know, sort of more appealing to people and a little bit more versatile with like regards to what you can do with it and what people might want to do with it. So I think that's part of it. On an industry level too, um, I mean, I, I, I don't really know a lot about like the art industry in terms of like sales in a lot of detail, but I know, um, so I mentioned my brother's wife, Abby, my sister-in-law. She uh, is still an artist. She's not working with Wine and Canvas. She does her own independent stuff at this point. Um, but she has a website or they have a website and she'll do a lot of paintings. She uses like really bright colors, does a lot of animals um, and she'll have the actual painting and sell that. But then she'll use that image and then make different prints of it that people can buy or like print it onto like a mask that you can buy or onto whatever object. Um, I don't even know how many different possibilities there are there. But um, so even kind of within the digital world, sometimes, not always, it's starting from a physical product. It's starting from kind of like that physical creation. Um, so I think it it's kind of a positive in that it provides people more business opportunities of like creating these different products from one initial thing, um, which is cool. And then um so I guess it, in that way it feels a little bit less like replacing it but just like some things like some spin-offs of that original artwork that you have absolutely so. yeah no I think that's really well said uh, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back in just a second and we're back so Aaron so let's get out of the art world for a little bit and travel to another world and that is the world of hiking so you're obviously an avid climber. Um, you enjoy both indoor uh, rock, indoor climbing and outdoor climbing. Um, but there is a picture that I saw that um, I thought was pretty cool and a little bit terrifying, honestly, at the same time. Oh my God, you're making so, me rethink all of the photos I've ever posted. Now. <laughs> I've never thought about it this much before. <laughs> so I just, want, I just want the story here. And how in the world were you not terrified when you are just dangling off the side of the wall? Because uh, you know, <laughs> Because my thing is like indoor climbing, you have something like attached to you, right? So like yeah. if you fall, for example, you're you're fine because like something's holding on to you. Mm -hmm. Here, I mean, I know there's a rope like coming off from below you. Just just give me just yeah, like what's what what's happening here? What's uh, happening? This, this terrifies me personally. Yeah, so it is. It's definitely a scary sport for most people to get into. I think initially, um, just making the assumption honestly that like most people have at least a little bit of a fear of heights because you know we want to live and not die pretty simple yeah, <laughs> so, <makes> sense. <laughs> um, so so yeah I think it's a little daunting for everyone and I definitely especially when I'm outdoor climbing because I don't get to go I, well I don't make the effort I guess I should say to go that often so a lot of times when I get back outside I I have to like get through the shakes of like oh man this is really scary and sort of work through that again because it's been several months since I last did it, for example. Um, so just throwing that out there, I think that's a very like normal thing for everyone to go through and definitely something that I go through even, even still now and I've been climbing for years. So, um, so this is what we're seeing here. You can also do in the gym. So it's, it's called lead climbing or sport climbing. Um, and 
What that means is that there are bolts that are, since we're, we're talking about outside here, someone has gone up and put in like drilled in or glued in bolts into the wall, like physically into the rock. Okay. At, at like different intervals. And then you, you go up the climb and as you get to those bolts, you'll like, you put what's called the quick draw into that bolt and then you put your rope through that. So then it, it creates a point of safety where if you fell, well, that's where you're not gonna fall really um, past that point, I guess is one way to think of it. I mean, you do come below it, but you know what I mean? Like it's a new yeah. anchor point. So, yeah, no, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, so here you can see <laughs> like by my left calf, there's like a little kind of like linear thing sticking out. Kind of, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think I see what you're saying. Sort of. It yeah. kind of looks like the rock, but I'm pretty sure that's a quick draw. And so if I were to fall right where I am in that situation, um, like, don't get me wrong, it can still be kind of freaky, but really I would only be falling a few feet because right. I'm not that far above it. And I have the rope tied in, or not tied into it, but tied into me and then clipped through that point. Gotcha, okay. And um, yeah. my second question with just climbing in general, because you've been part of that, I don't want to say industry, what I want to say, part of that interest for a good while. Um, and I guess I just want to ask, like, because I know when you were involved in, um, oh my gosh, what's the name of the gym, climbing gym in Bloomington? Who's your height? Who's your height? Yes. yes. Um, you were part of the event that was like woman for climbing or something like that. And I guess I just want to dig a little deeper into that. Just talk about, um, woman involvement in climbing so like I guess I guess the way I want to phrase this question is um do you kind of see like I don't want to say disrespect I don't know if that's the right word for it but you know you can you, do you know what I mean like just kind of like oh like you know the old-fashioned saying like oh she's a girl like why is she climbing like you know those kind <laughs> of you know those kind of statements like that I don't yeah. know if you guys want to like talk about that a little more and like is that is that a thing in climbing I guess Sure, sure. So the, the event you're talking about is one that they put on in Bloomington every year. I don't, maybe they, there's a Hoosier Heights in Indy where maybe they do it there as well. I'm not sure. Um, but it's once a year and it's an event where they just like open the gym for that evening just for women. And the idea behind it, I've never been like part of the planning or anything, is that um, it historically climbing like a lot of sports has been like very male dominated and um sometimes it can be a little bit harder for women to like be incorporated into the group or sometimes like it can just be intimidating um honestly just because of a lot of like stereotypes that float around you know they're not specific to climbing it's just like stereotypes that float around in our society <laughs> um and and it's a sport so it tends to like have a little bit more of a male presence um just historically and so yeah the event is really just like trying to create a space where it's like a bunch of female climbers being brought together so that you don't have any of the kind of like stereotypes being imposed and also it's just supposed to be kind of encouraging and like empowering women in the sport to be like do your thing connect with other women who climb like maybe you have faced guys being like uh, I don't know maybe a little bit more uh unkind or obnoxious or whatever like whatever their experience was maybe if that's been your experience like you don't have to deal with that today or it's just like a cool way to connect with other female climbers um so yeah so i i wouldn't say personally it's something where i have felt like i i couldn't climb or in some way was like held back from participating be, like being female in the climbing community um but definitely like there can be times where if there's like a big group of guys climbing together, um, it can it can feel intimidating just because of sort of like the group effect of like, I, I this could definitely happen with women too. But I think in sports, we just see like, you know, you think of like a big group of burly guys like climbing and like screaming while they're going hold to hold. And it's just, it's kind of freaky. And you're like, um, can I, can I jump in? <laughs> yeah. and, and it's not always a welcoming environment. Not that I think those like men are, um, are trying to like exclude them. Right. I don't think that's the intention whatsoever, but I think sometimes it can be a little bit harder for women to feel, feel comfortable kind of jumping into that. If that is the, the environment that they're in, if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. I mean, I hopefully one day, um, it gets to a point where 
you know, no one really has to worry about feeling like intimidated or excluded or anything like that. And um, I'm glad to see that like there's no direct um, problems of that happening. But yeah, surely the indirect stuff could be still part of the part of thing as well. And hopefully um, society will continue to progress and um, hopefully more and more of those indirect things will start to minimize themselves on their own. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's exactly it. Like, and just because it hasn't been my experience, I'm sure someone else has had experiences that were like more challenging. Um, I'm just fortunate that that hasn't been my situation. And I, I definitely don't feel feel like that's a culture in Bloomington, for example. I think it's just more like we, like we were saying, that kind of like societal, historical thing that has just hung around a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just an event focused on inclusivity, basically. Awesome. All right, Aaron. So one last thing I want to talk about before we sign off. Um, I know it's kind of dipping into medicine a little bit, but you created a really cool um, organization for Indiana University branch specifically um, called SNAP, which I believe is Students for National Health Program. I think it's what it's called. Yeah. Um, And you literally, at least for Bloomington, I don't really know the history of SNAP per se, but like you literally build it up from the ground up in Bloomington, it seems like, because you were really spearheading making a branch there and um, getting people involved. So um, I guess I just want to give you an opportunity to um, say, what is this about? Like, what should people know about this cause? So I'm going to give you the floor and talk and have you talk about SNAP for a little bit. Sure. Thanks for the floor, because I think you realize I love talking. So. <laughs> no, you're okay. You're <laughs> Okay, so SNAP. Um, so I actually came across it. Uh, let me, I'm trying to think of a good narrative way of like getting into this. So I volunteered at Volunteers in Medicine in Bloomington um, kind of during my gap years before med school. And it was a clinic that was specifically for people who did not have health insurance, who did not have access to health insurance, um, maybe because they were temporarily kicked out of HIP, Healthy Indiana Plan, which is uh, Indiana's version of Medicaid or expanded Medicaid. Um, Maybe that was their situation. Maybe they weren't citizens. Like there's a whole, you know, there's a whole host of reasons that people can end up without health insurance with with the way that our system is currently set up. And so, I, I just wasn't really being, you know, 20 some years old. I wasn't, I hadn't had that much contact with like dealing with health insurance and didn't know a whole lot about it. And through that experience, I learned like, I, I was just surprised really. I was like, wow, people can get kicked off of their health insurance plan or people don't have access to, you know, come, come into the doctor and get an EpiPen if they, if they have, uh, you know, a, an allergy to something that's really serious that, you know, like bees where it could happen at any time or whatever, any name, the medical problem. I just what really struck me as pretty surprising. And I guess kind of disappointing that we have a lot of people who are just totally left hanging <laughs> with no health insurance and no healthcare coverage. Um, and so I started like learning more about it and I, ran into a doctor in, in Bloomington, um, Dr. Stone, Rob Stone. He does palliative care and he uh, was runs the Bloomington branch of Physicians for National Health Programs, which is the, the national group that SNAP is a student portion of. And um, I started going to his meetings and talking to him more about this and uh, learned about the idea of Medicare for all and having a national healthcare system um, and what, that, what exactly that could look like is pretty open right now, of course, um, depending on how, if, if people were to implement that, how they would go about it. Um, but it might be something similar to um, Canada, for example, where the uh, health insurance is provided by your government. So you have health insurance no matter what your job is, no matter what your citizenship status is, no matter what your transitional point, and you don't have these like potential instances where you might be dropped from your health insurance. It's just always there. Um, and then the healthcare uh, workers are actually still private employees. Like they're not employed by the government. They still, it would be like having the clinics that we have now, but the insurance would just be different. The clinics would be the same. Anywho, so I really liked that idea. And I, it just seemed so natural to me. Um, I, I guess as someone going into medicine, maybe, maybe that's the reason why that 
people should have access to it. And, and the reasons that people don't are so arbitrary. Uh, like yeah. They, can we, can we actually dig into that actually? Yeah. That was going to be my next question. So, you know, programs, organizations and programs like these, what are fortunately or unfortunately have a lot of um, political atmospheres ish behind it, I guess is a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. And that can, that can make things pretty hazy because you know, yeah, politics are these days. So sure. I guess I, to kind of close out this interview, I guess like what's one misconception about an idea of a national program that you're seeing a lot of people um, having about and what's kind of like playing myth buster for me. Like what's, what's like a myth that you hear often and what's actually like the facts. Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, depending on what program, like what proposal exactly for, for a national health care plan you're looking at, it might be a, a bit different, but from the perspective of PNHP and what they're proposing, what they promote, they have a, like a house and a Senate bill. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but, um, uh, they have ones that they like specific policy that they support and encourage people to, you know, take to their legislators, et cetera. And they, that national health insurance is, uh, I would say, and usually Medicare for all is how it's going to be referred to. Um, I think one huge misconception is something I've already touched on is where people think that it's going to be like socialized medicine, where not only is the government providing the insurance, so the payment system, but it's also now employing the the healthcare workers, um, which I think has been more of a concern from the medical field, people who are nurses, doctors, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, they're like, well, I don't want to work for the government. I don't want to be an employee of the government. Um, and honestly, the motivations behind that, I don't really know. I'm sure it's different for a lot of people. But um, I think that's one, like, misconception that people jump to really quickly is they think, oh, it's a health system, like a a national health system. So now it's all going to be under governmental control. And it's really not that. It's an expansion of the existing um, Medicare plan that we have right now, which is a national health insurance plan, right? It would just be expanding that so that it's available to everyone. And obviously they would have to rewrite some of the policy within that because right now Medicare is only available for people 65 and older or who are disabled. So um, of course there'd be a lot of changes in it, but it's really just taking something that we already have and expanding it to be like, to cover everybody. And it doesn't change the fact that you would still have like hospitals and physician groups just the same they are now, um, but just not having to deal with multiple insurances. They would just have one that they're billing each time. So, So, yeah. Yeah, so for someone who is hearing all about this for the first time and just wants to get the the real basic of like what the basics of what's going on. What's like a good website or like anything really that they can go to to just get the basic of like what the debate is around it and all that stuff. That's an interesting point. I don't I don't know exactly like what would be a good website to like see the debate around it. Basically, in the sense of seeing both like the pros and cons of what, what everyone is saying. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I would encourage anyone who's interested in learning more about, uh, a national health insurance program to go to PNHP's website. If you just Google PNHP or physicians for a national health program, you can get to their website and they have, they will, they have links about just what is their overall philosophy? What is Medicare for all? What is it not? They do a lot of kind of like that myth busting and debunking, um, and I think they'll do a better job of it in like a one-liner or like a one-sheet pamphlet than, than what I could explain right now. Um, so I think that's a good place to start. And you can actually, if you if you really want to dive into it, they have links to the actual policies. So those like House and Senate bills that I was talking about that they specifically promote, um, they have the links to the, the nitty-gritty of all those details as well. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, a great place for anyone to start if it's something you want to learn more about. And I would encourage it. I think it's a very interesting topic and unfortunately politicized in a, in a weird way. <laughs> um, of course, it's part of policy and, and it would be government-based so that part makes sense. But, um, you know, it's, I don't think this needs to be one or the other party's views. I think this is just talking about healthcare, which is something that both parties are going to care about. So Absolutely. So yeah, yeah. pnhp.com, is that the website? I think it's .org. But, oh, okay. okay. But yeah, .org. Yeah, because I think for any listener, I mean, the debate around healthcare and like 
you know, buzzwords like big pharma, prescriptions, and mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's going to be part of our generation. So yeah, if you want to learn more about it, check out the websites that Aaron has uh, suggested for you all there. All right, Aaron, that's it. That's the interview. I mean, we covered a lot here, which I'm very happy from, you know, health programs, art, hiking, sexy potatoes. I mean, we covered it all. (laughs) (laughs) And Aaron, I just want to thank you so much for being a great guest today. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Um, We got to have a part two because honestly, like there's a lot more I can ask. So one day we got to do a part two. (laughs) Sounds good. I look forward to that. All right. So there you have it, guys. Um, thank you guys so much for joining this uh, episode of Beyond the Books with the wonderful Aaron Bandman. Uh, check out the episode on YouTube and Spotify and look forward to more episodes there. All right, everyone, signing off. Have a good day. Quick shout outs. Thank you so much to Brett Laus for uh, creating the podcast logo. If you want to see more of his works, go to his website, www.brett, the symbol dash, Laus, L-A-U-X, Dot squarespace.com and another shout out to Dalton Bates for helping me with the voiceover work. Go to his website www.daltonbates.com to see more of his projects there. Thanks again for joining and have a great day. You're listening to Beyond the Books with your host Alex John. <laughs>